Turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I'm only going to read four verses. Very small passage, very power-packed passage, but a small passage. Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you want to follow along with us, just raise your hand. Uh, we do go verse by verse through uh, different studies. Uh, we'll take some periodic topical studies. Uh, this Wednesday, reminding you, this Wednesday night, I'm doing a special slideshow of Israel. Uh, it'll, be ve- it'll be fascinating for you, I guarantee it. It will be eye-opening for you. Uh, I will tie in the past, the present, and the prophetic future, and you'll see actual spots that are in the news right now, places that will be in the news perhaps in your lifetime, places that are definitely going to be in the world news in the future where all the armies of the world are going to converge. You'll take a look at these things and see what is the relevance of them. Uh, The whole world is watching the Israeli elections right now. Uh, All the world's eyes are on the Middle East, and really all the world's eyes will eventually come to Jerusalem. So come with uh, uh, just an expectant heart this Wednesday night, uh, 6.30, we'll meet. Uh, I'll be showing the slides, and I'll be kind of giving you some scriptural backgrounds of what you're looking at and what the relevance and importance is both in past things in scripture and what's coming and really even, like I said, uh, what's happening right now. And then uh, after that, uh, in Wednesday nights going forward, we have three other Wednesday nights left, I'll be doing a series called uh, Finances, Faith, and Freedom. Finances, Faith, and Freedom. And if you're wondering, uh, what, what does God have to say about money, managing it, money managing me, which is what happens with many people, uh, come on those Wednesday nights. And we'll continue in the book of Luke for now on Sunday mornings. Uh, so that's where we're at this morning. Uh, starting with verse 33, reading verses 33 through 36. And it says this, Jesus speaking, if your Bibles are open, you'll see this is all red letter. He's still doing the speaking as we uh, saw last week as well. No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it at a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light, but when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Aren't you glad when a light you need to work and you expect to work actually works? Last year in my vehicle, my alternator went out, or start when it, when it was going out, eventually it went out, out. But when it was going out, and I didn't know exactly what was happening, uh, the headlights began to get dim and more dim because it wasn't recharging the battery, and it became more and more dim. That wasn't a good feeling on the highway. I realized just how much I needed the headlights when there was no street lights around. Because I don't see real good at night without my glasses on. Even with my glasses on, I don't see so good at night. More light is really necessary. Am I the only one like that? Night vision, not so good anymore. Don't you love it, though, when you walk into a room, you go to turn on the light, and the ball blows? That's always fun, right? I don't know who wired our house. It happens way too often at our house. But uh, you'll turn on a light. Remember um, 
those times where the power goes out. You have the candles, but nobody can find a match. <laughs> and it's dark. Why were the matches not put back in the same place they're always put? Last year, we were, uh, a couple of years ago, I don't remember. Remember a couple of years ago in the Super Bowl? The lights went out at the Super Bowl. That was an ominous thing as far as I was concerned. But nevertheless, no one expected to try and play the game in the dark. The lights went out. But the light of Jesus Christ never fails and never goes out, does it? And we can be assured that if his light is in us, we too can shine perpetually, perpetually, I can say that word, by his grace. If you're taking notes this morning, I've tottered our time in God's word this morning, a lamp well lit, a lamp well lit. And if I was going to give it a subtitle, I don't always, but every now and then if I was thinking, man, I could give this more than one title, I could give it several, but I was going to give it a second subtitle, it would be this, Battle for the Eye. Because he, Jesus addresses both here in just these four verses. I don't have an outline this morning. Well, I do, but I didn't name it. I'm going to just go each of these verses, just four verses, go through them. But if there's one thing that we'll look at, really zero in on, it's the contrast between light and darkness. The contrast between light and darkness. Both exist. What is darkness? It's the absence of light. And Jesus expels all darkness wherever he comes in, wherever he is. We'll start in verse 33 here. Jesus, he says, no one, when he's lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place. No one takes their lamp and goes and puts it where it can't be seen, but actually puts it on a lampstand that those who come in, we have the lights on in this room. We didn't turn them off and then put them out in the parking lot. We left them, and it wouldn't work anyway, but you get the idea. In the Old Testament, also called the Tanakh, your Genesis through Malachi and your Bibles, the, the thicker section. In the Old Testament, and what that really represents is all those years, even though they're, they're actual writings of Scripture, but in the Old Testament, in the ancient times, as well as the time of Christ, and of course for us, the time of Christ is an ancient time as well, but in the ancient times of Israel and then in the time of Christ, because the temple, of course, was still resident, Herod's temple was still there in Jerusalem when Jesus was there, until 70 AD. Of course, he prophesied of its destruction. But in the temple, you had the menorah. Everyone familiar with the menorah? If you're not, there's one sitting right back there in our sound booth. It's got a center branch, and it's got three on each side, a total of seven lamps. According to Jewish tradition, the menorah was pretty heavy and large. It was four and a half feet tall, and it weighed 100 pounds of solid gold. What a piece of art, but also it was, had this holy significance. The lamps, each of the, each of the lamps, you had the center, the center lamp and you had the three on each side that make up the menorah. The lamps had to be lit every morning. The center lamp, bur the center lamp burned throughout the day. Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition and the writings tell us the center lamp of the original menorah. What was the original menorah? The original menorah was the one uh, in the tabernacle. 
that was out in the wilderness. Remember, the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. The original menorah there in the tabernacle was cleaned in the morning by the priest. They would clean the menorah, and then they would light it in the evening, but the center lamp burned continuously, never went out. That's what the Jewish writings tell us. The rabbis referred to this as the miracle of the menorah, that it was miraculous that it never, the center lamp, just the center lamp, never burned out. Now, Christ began his earthly ministry. Turn with me for just a second. We'll come back to this. Turn with me to the book of John. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I know we only normally turn once. Today you get to turn twice. John chapter 1. You know probably these verses. Or you probably heard them. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. John writes, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Turn over to the 8th chapter. Just take a right-hand turn. Go to chapter 8. Look at verse 12. A beautiful verse. If it's not underlined in your Bible, you'll want to underline this one. 8, John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Go back to Luke chapter 11. You see, Jesus, think back to the menorah, the original menorah, the center lamp burned continuously. It was a holy, it was a holy peace unto the Lord, but that center lamp burned continuously. Christ, when he began his earthly ministry, what did he do? He made the Father known, he made himself known, himself he made known as the light of the world. You just read it in John 8, 12. He called himself the light of the world. He made forgiveness of sins known to everyone in every place that he went. Interestingly enough, the Talmud writings refer to the menorah. Get this, the Talmud writings refer to the menorah. Menorah, this was written well before Jesus was born and, and, and comes along. They referred to the menorah as the light of the world. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the light of the world. So for the Jewish hearer that understood that the menorah was referred to by the rabbinical writings as the light of the world, he comes along and says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm the light of the world. Or, I'm a greater light than the light inside the temple. Jesus was figuratively and yet quite literally, the lamp and the light burning continuously in the presence of Israel when he walked among them. They had a walking menorah in their presence, lighting up the darkness wherever he went. But unlike the menorah, which was kept in the holy place, and it was visible only to the priesthood, and even a small number within the priesthood would ever see the menorah, Jesus made himself available to everyone wherever he went. He did not hide the light in the holy of holies, or the holy place. Like the menorah, though, he was also holy, 
He was consecrated. The menorah was consecrated unto the Lord. Jesus was holy. He was consecrated. But instead of the menorah, which was in the temple for those priestly, very few uh, priests that would ever see it, and it was there for the Lord, Jesus walked the earth more like a torch or a house lamp that everyone could use. Everyone needs a torch. Hey, we're going through the woods, it's dark. He would be that light. He would give the light to the world. He left heaven where he would have been the light of heaven in the holy place of heaven. He comes to, uh, come to the earth to give light to all those that need it, and surely we all need it. So as he speaks to the practical use of a lamp, we all understand the practical use of a lamp. He speaks to the practical use of the lamp, understanding the backdrop, Jesus is the holy lamp, the light of the world. But he speaks this practical use of a lamp, and he knows if he hid his light, he knows that if he hid his light, we'd have no hope, would we? If he decided, hey, I'm not going to let my light shine. Not going to do it. These people have made too many mistakes, done too many things wrong. They're too dark. They're too wicked. They're too rebellious. I'm not going to let my light shine. I'm just going to hang out in the temple. And maybe a few priests will see it. But he didn't do that. He knows we'd have no hope. And here he makes the point that just as nobody would hide a lamp, as he hadn't hit his own lamp, he says, practically speaking, nobody would ever hide a lamp. Once they light it, they light it so it would give light. Give light to the house. Give light to the family. Give light to the neighborhood. Street lights in your neighborhood. They're lit for a reason that people would be able to see the light. And likewise, Jesus illustrates here that it's preposterous that someone who has received his light, once you've received his light, he says, it would make no sense whatsoever if you really received my light, the light of the world, it would make no sense for that person to then hide the light that Jesus himself didn't hide. He didn't hide his light. So why would any of the followers who have received his light hide his light? He says, no one. When he's lit a lamp, puts it under the, puts it under the bed, goes and hides it somewhere where it can't be seen. Last week we talked about authentic change. And one of the characteristics of real, authentic change is that light will actually flow from our lives. That makes sense? Light will flow from our lives. And the desire to share the light with the world comes when Christ actually resides in us. We can't make up that desire. I never had a desire to tell people about the Lord before I knew the Lord as my Lord and Savior. That came after I'd received the light. I had to be wired uh, to actually receive the currents of God's light that it would actually go back out. We're not capable, we're not capable of producing God's light as in our natural state, in our natural sin state, there is no light. We're not capable of producing it. There's no light in us. We can only receive the light if we've received it through Christ. You can't receive it any other way. There's not another. He is the way, the truth, and the life and the light. There's no other way to receive that light, but we can receive it. And once we receive it, the natural, the supernatural in the salvation, but the natural response is then for that light to go back out. We receive that light through Christ by repentance. 
We looked at some of that last week. Jesus was teaching on that. And from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in. He's the oil that keeps that lamp burning. Remember the center lamp? Continued to burn. The oil would never go out. Why? Because the Holy Spirit never will go out of a person that's truly saved. Will continue to burn. And we can be assured that once the true light or the lamp of Christ, you can also refer to it that way, the lamp of Christ resides within us, Jesus is never going to tell us to quench it and hide it. Oh, I don't want you to share that light with the lost and dying world. Quite the opposite. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 27, Matthew 10, 27, whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and whatever you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. That's what he says. He says, I've never told you. you Some people say, well, my faith's just a very personal thing. Yeah, it's so personal that you created it. Because you certainly didn't get it from the Lord Jesus Christ. True? I mean, I don't say that. I don't want to, I'm not saying that like, well, I, I, I've never hid my faith. I, I, just like you, I've been afraid sometimes. I've shirked the responsibility. I've actually covered the light. Have you? Sure, we've done it sometimes. But it's not from the Lord. That's from our flesh, isn't it? Jesus never hid the light. He's the only one that never for a second said, I'm afraid what people are going to think about me here, so I'm just going to tuck the Christianity inside. (laughs) Just for an hour. I'm still going to be nice. I'm still going to say good things. I'm still going to smile at people. I'm just not going to let them know that I'm a Christian because things could go south. Jesus never did that. Not one single time. Not one single time did he ever say, I'm going to hide the light. But we do sometimes, don't we? And he never did that. He said to preach it from the housetops. Tell it wherever you go. Jesus gave then, and he still gives today, his disciples the light of salvation. And his disciples, both then and now, are to take it to the whole world. Everywhere you go. He said to go to every person, didn't he? Every person. Go into all the world, every creature means person. You're not supposed to go preach to your neighbor's dog or anything like that, but uh, every person. Pastor Greg Laurie out in Riverside, California, he said in his book, Making God Known, uh, he speaks of the three W's in evangelism. The three W's of evangelism. The first W is who? Who's supposed to do the work? Us. The who is us? Where? Where are we supposed to do the work? Uh, Everywhere. India, China, Africa, Richmond, Henrico, wherever it is, everywhere. Why? Because God uses people to reach people. Could he send angels? Yes. Could he just shout with the voice of God like he did at Mount Sinai and actually have it reverberate all over the world? Of course he could. But he uses people to reach people. Instead of using one gigantic light like the sun which everything outside right now, the street lamps are of no effect. When the sun rises, all greater lights go dim, right? The sun is shining outside right now. You do not need a flashlight out there right now because one gigantic light is doing all the work. One one second of the sun is like 
thousands of nuclear power plants. But instead, Jesus sends us out, not when it's light, he sends us out in the dark, all of us as individual candles. And that's how he reaches the world. Why exactly he does that? Well, we'll find out when we get to heaven, won't we? But we know that's what he does. Charles Spurgeon said, must be the day for Spurgeon quotes because you guys had a couple, so why don't I throw one in there too? Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Hey, I didn't say it, Spurgeon said it, but uh, he was in the 1800s and you could say those kind of things and people didn't get overly offended. But it's true, isn't it? Everyone's called to be a missionary. And if we're not, Jesus is saying, what, if you're the one that takes the lamp and is hiding it, what does that say about the light that's in you? Now, to be sure, this should comfort us a little bit. Now, to be sure, some missionaries, think about missionaries. It's missionaries you've met, missionaries you've read about. But think about the fact that everyone here, if you're saved, you're called to be a missionary, you're supposed to be a missionary. But I've read many stories about missionaries. And some had a greater impact than others, but they all had some level of impact. That makes sense? But the impact, you know, some Jesus talked about, that uh, some would bear more fruit, some would actually have larger amounts of a harvest. But every missionary, if you look at them, some are more effective than others. Why is that? Well, some are more mature than others. Some are more experienced than others. They've exercised their faith longer. They've spent more time in prayer. They're more bold because they've exercised their faith and spent more time in prayer. Some, after a lifetime of prayer, really have learned to rest in God's power. They no longer worry about themselves and try and do it themselves. They really have the light flow from their life. But if they're genuine, regardless of some have greater impact, some missionaries say, well, I went there and, and 100 got saved. Another missionary went somewhere, we went somewhere and 50,000 got saved. Well, that really is the Lord's doing anyway. But regardless, neither are imposters, correct? Both are true lights. Think about it like this. In my home, and probably yours as well, you probably have various flashlights. They have different lumens, right? Some uh, have a higher beam that actually can light up the whole backyard. Some, you wonder why you ever bought it in the first place. This thing is worthless. But it still has a light. I shouldn't say worthless. It could help you find something on the floorboard of your car. It's good for that. It's still giving out some light. True? We have different light bulbs in our house. We have 25 watt. We have 40 watt. We have 75 watt. We have 100 watt. And now we have these ones that, what are the ones that are the uh, LEDs or whatever else uh, that I don't really like? But anyway, we have those two. But they all give light as they're designed to do, correct? But they all give the same amount of light, but none of them are imposters. They all are legitimate light bulbs. But here's the good news for us as believers. We're not like flashlights and light bulbs. In other words, we we're not designed that we could never burn any brighter than we currently are burning. A 50-watt bulb or 60-watt bulb can't burn any brighter than its design, period. That lame flashlight that you got, the freebie that came from the uh, mail order, it will never get any brighter than those lumens, all five it's giving off, 
right? But as a believer, we can give off far more light than we're currently giving off. True? Because Jesus, he had, there's no limitation to the amount of light that he could give off. Sadly, though, many believers that used to burn at 100 watts, 10 years later are burning at 25 watts. Isn't that sad? Well, I remember when I used to witness to people at work. Well, do you still? Nah. I'm pretty sure they're all saved. Really? <laughs> Let me sit in your lunchroom and let's, let's diagnose together. I'm pretty sure they're not all saved. Now, I'm not saying that you go and preach into everyone's ear, but I'm saying that we, we are ready to shine as lights wherever we go. This ought not be. Proverbs 4.18 says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the new day. Brighter. We should be getting brighter, not more dim. Let's look at the verse 34. The lamp of the body is the eye. So if there's a subtext to this, it would be the battle for the eye. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is also full of light. But when the eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Jesus turns his attention here to the eye. And the importance of the eye in conveying light and in purity, but also, not only does it convey light and purity, your eyes convey light and purity, but they also are important in maintaining the light we've been given and maintaining the purity of Christ in our life. Apparently, Jesus, when he makes this statement, apparently he was actually referencing a common proverb of that day when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. This, this was what most scholars believe was a common proverb that day. The eye is the lamp of the body. If you said that in ancient Israel, they all understood what you meant. In other words, it meant something like this. A good eye, you can trust that person. That makes sense? They've got a good eye, you can trust that person. I see in their eyes, I can trust them. Jesus goes on to expound that the eye... It's both an indicator, those of you that are still uh, working in business, KPIs, right? Indicators, key performance indicators, indicators of the eye. But it's also a gateway. It's not just an indicator, it's also a gateway. And we've all probably said at some time in our life, I can see something in their eyes. We've all said that. Even when we've been wrong, we still think we've said it. We still think we saw it some. Tonight at the Super Bowl, the coaches, what will they do? They'll look into the eyes of the players and see, are they ready? Are they ready? They're going to look in their eyes. We notice people's eyes, don't we? We've probably all said at one time or another about a baby or a child, look at those big brown eyes. Look at those big blue eyes. We can see tiredness and fatigue in eyes, can't we? We certainly can feel it in our eyes, that's for sure, right? But we can see tiredness and fatigue in eyes. We can see excitement, the eyes of a child on Christmas morning, the proverbial biggest saucers. We can see disappointment in the eyes. We can see guilt in the eyes, can't we? We can see evil in the eyes. We can see deception in people's eyes. We can see rage. And usually when you see rage, they want you to see rage in the eyes. We can see anger. The eyes are called, you've probably heard, the windows to the soul. 
And that concept actually comes from Jesus' statement here. There's no Bible verses, windows at all. That concept comes from here. Even your unsaved friends that would say, windows at all, you can now, you have a Bible study to give them now. You know where that comes from? Uh, I don't know. Henry David Thoreau? No, 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 no. Didn't come from poetry. Jesus of Nazareth. That's where it comes from. Windows of the soul, the eye being the lamp, that's where it comes from. See, they're an indicator of what's on the inside. The eyes tell us what's on the inside. Our eyes tell us something that's often stronger than the words that we are saying. The eyes are still speaking. Even when the mouth closes, the eyes are still speaking. On a given day, what do people see in your eyes? Any given day, what do people see in your eyes? In my eyes. Do they see sincerity? Do they see love? Do they see honesty? Do they see compassion? Do they see humility? Do they see confidence? I didn't say arrogance. Confidence. The kind of confidence that gives assurance to other people. People need you to help assure them. Your kids need you to assure them they can do it. They can move forward. Do they see forgiveness in the eye? Do they see gentleness in the eye? Do they see purity in the eye? Do they see kindness? Do they see acceptance? Or do they see rejection in the eyes? Can you imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus? Think about it. Someday we're going to look into the eye. The Bible specifically says we'll look into the eyes of Jesus. Why? Because his eyes will be speaking with his words, not saying anything. What do people see when they look in your eyes, in my eyes? See, our eyes will either convey. They'll either convey Christ as Lord of our lives and the light and purity that comes through his lordship, or they will convey that we are the Lord of our lives. Our eyes will convey we're the Lord of our lives, and they'll reveal the sin and the darkness and the works of the flesh that follow. Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaking of apostates, said this. He said in 2 Peter 2.14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Eyes full of adultery, constantly lusting after the things of the flesh. Certainly not the eyes Jesus wants us to have. Note that Jesus makes clear here, look what he says. He says, therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body's full of light. When your eye is bad, the whole body's full of darkness. This is an all-or-nothing proposition, folks, isn't it? Notice that Jesus makes clear we're either full of light or we're full of what? Darkness. Jesus is not big on middle ground, isn't he? Remember Revelation 3? I would that you were what? Hot or cold. You're lukewarm. Vomit you out. Jesus is not politically correct. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't try and straddle the middle. What do the polls say? How can I actually play to both sides? He simply says the fact is it's either all dark or it's all light. It's either completely in me or it's completely in yourself, and in that case, with the enemy. He doesn't have a medium or half-light condition here. It's all light or it's all darkness. Now, because I said, even as believers, we can have all light and in weakness and moments we can kind of hide the light, can't we? But it's still all light. 
Listen to these words from Martin Luther. He wrote, the, I mean, he preached these uh, a few hundred years ago. But listen to what he said. He said, it's not enough to say I am baptized or to say I am a bishop, I am a cardinal, I am a preacher. You must believe in Christ and live like a Christian. You must be righteous both on the inside and the outside. You must not be embarrassed of the Lord Christ and the Christian faith. If you are, then you are a false Christian. If you don't believe in your heart, your entire life is a lie and you remain in darkness. You aren't righteous. You only appear to be a Christian. Your actions don't reflect your true Christian faith. If we could separate Christians from one another and divide them into true and false Christians, how many true Christians would we find? The world is crazy, foolish, and wild. It's filled with all kinds of evil, adultery, drunkenness, vindictiveness, and other sins. Some people no longer consider it a sin for them to cheat others. Yet these same people want to be considered good Christians. Believe me, you're not fooling anyone but yourself. God isn't fooled or mocked. He will know what you are really like in an instant. True? Jesus knows true light from true darkness. That was some preaching over 300 years ago from a pulpit. Martin Luther. Well, those guys didn't play around back then, did they? So much of what Jesus spoke of in his earthly ministry. We, you know, we need to be reminded the whole Bible is for our admonition, isn't it? It's to move us forward in the faith, to move us forward in our faith. Uh, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he spoke constantly about true and false religion, true and false conversions, because so many people were steeped in religion, and Jesus said, you think you're full of light, and you're full of darkness. Those were the ones that would do what? They put him on the cross. They could not stand that message. Drove them nuts. No one had ever accused them of being full of darkness until the true light came along, the light of the menorah from heaven. He spoke of this all the time. We've all probably watched a movie or a TV show where someone said, your eyes betray you. And Jesus knows when the eyes betray, doesn't he? He knows what's inside, if it's darkness or if it's light. Your lips, your body language saying one thing, but the eyes saying something different. And of course... God looks at the eyes of our heart, doesn't he? Even if we could fool someone else, he still, as Martin Luther said, he knows in an instant where the eyes really are. Look at these last two verses. We come to a close. Verse 35 and 36. Therefore, take heed of that light which is in you, that it's not darkness. He said, take heed that the light in you doesn't grow dark. That's what he's saying. If your whole body's full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light as the bright shining of a lamp. Jesus wants us to be these well-lit lamps. He has no desire that we would ever go back to darkness. And Jesus tells us to take heed, to take stock, to understand the seriousness of the battle for our eyes because the eyes is where it starts. The eyes is what Satan used in the Garden of Eden to tell Adam and Eve, I know that God gave you virtually every single thing, but have you seen this one? Right? It's like those funny commercials. I just got my brand new phone. There comes the truck. Your phone is old, you know? Right? That's what Satan's been doing forever. The Super Bowl tonight, they're going to pay millions of dollars to capture your eyes and my eyes and say, why don't you have this yet? What are you waiting on? Your credit card is sitting right there in your wallet. Dial now. 
Go online. You can afford this. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. This is the battle inside, right? And Jesus says, you can't and don't need it. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, it's of the world. By the way, the things that are, the things that our eyes are attracted to in the world, in many cases, and in fact most cases, are a mirage. They're a mirage. They're fading faster than we can possibly understand. You know? This past, I, I, every week I go and visit my grandmother, 96 years old. I was taking notes on my little OneNote application this week, just it, I, asking her about things in the 20s, in the 30s, and the things that have passed so quickly. And I visited uh, your father, 97. And I, I'm fascinated that they have seen things fly by. Because it's all a mirage in a, in a larger sense. Very few things will last for eternity. Folks, this is going to last right here. And Jesus said, all these things that you're looking at, they won't be there. They'll be at the county landfill soon. My old pastor used to tell us, go take a big whiff out there and you'll, you'll see the things that you owned a few years ago. But so many things that the enemy is enticing with the eyes are either worthless, unimportant, or extremely destructive. People say when they watch certain things, they say, I was mesmerized. You ever heard that term? I was mesmerized. I was spellbound. I couldn't take my eyes off it. And boy, there's some really wicked things that that applies to now in our world, isn't there? All of the above. Satan capturing people. It's like instead of their eyes being gateway, he's actually just torching them. And they're scalded. But Jesus tells us in, second, uh, in Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians 4.18, that we don't even look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are eternal. We have spiritual eyes now, but we guard our physical eyes. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18.9, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. Sometimes people ask, did Jesus preach on hell? You just heard it. You just heard it. Better than you... I don't think he preached on hell. You just heard the verse. It's not the only place. It's one of several. That if your eye has this much trouble, it'd be better for you to pluck it out. Now, he's not really saying, although it would be a better alternative, but he's making the point of how serious the lust of gravitational pull is for the things that God has said, no, you cannot have that for our own protection. That's some serious warning from Jesus, isn't it? It's a heavy warning. He's making a strong point, and he's not backing off the point, is he? Because it's still here. He takes purity and holiness serious, and he wants us to take purity and holiness serious. What does it say in 1 Peter 1.16? It is written, be holy, for I am holy. God's called us to holiness we have to recognize what attracts our eyes. It's almost always idolatrous, lustful, greed, or covetous. It almost always falls in one of those categories. And I'm not saying all those things are necessarily sins in and of themselves. 
but we can make them that way because we, we have these eyes that just desire them. It's something we want that God hasn't and probably won't be giving us. But our eyes want it anyway, don't they? Adam and Eve. Their eyes wanted it anyway. God said, you're not having that. You're never going to touch that particular, you're never going to eat that one. Well, I want that one. You have the whole planet. This is how our nature is, folks. It's all darkness, isn't it? That's our nature. Jesus made the stamp, uh, when Jesus made the statement, lamp of the body, in another place. He made it uh, in Matthew 6.22. You can learn there later. But when he says it there in Matthew 6.22, this is very interesting. When he says it in Matthew 6.22, do you know, where it, you know where it's fixed between? When he says it in Matthew 6.22, the lamp is the eye of the body, it's fixed between, it's sandwiched in between these two passages. The one prior, he says, lay up your treasure where? In heaven, where moth and rust and things, it, it, won't, ever, it won't ever corrode. The next, where it's sandwiched in between the verses after it, he says, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, which is God and money. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the one thing the eye has an insatiable desire for is more things that replace God. Because money buys things. And treasures occupy the heart as opposed to God occupying the heart. And he says, those things, your eye will constantly, you're going to battle the eye till the day you die. I know that rhymes, doesn't it? That wasn't even in my notes. We have to walk in the light, live in the light of Christ's presence, and we have to steer clear of the darkness and deception of the world and our own flesh. We don't need everyone else to tempt us. We have enough issues with ourselves, which is why we have to protect our eyes. Proverbs 31, 18, about the virtuous woman, which is also uh, a, a, a really a picture of the virtuous church and the virtuous believer. In 31.18 it says, her lamp does not go out by night. The lamp stays burning. The wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, the oil kept their lamps burning. So how do we guard our eyes? How do we guard our souls from temptation and darkness and sin? And to put it another way, where, where do we decide to guard the eyes? Or how do we decide to guard the eyes? Right here. It's in the heart. See, the eyes don't control the heart. The heart controls the eyes. The eyes are a gateway. They're a problem and they're a blessing. True? They're a blessing when what's coming out of them is kindness and purity and humility and love and gentleness. But they're a problem when what's coming out of them is rage and lust and evil. They're a problem and a blessing. When Jesus takes control of the heart and the eyes, both are working in beautiful harmony. True? He actually captures the heart and he perfects the eyes. They work the way his eyes work. We want to see through the eyes of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2. It tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our eyes should be looking on his eyes. And that starts in our heart. Job in 31.1 says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. You have to purpose, say, Lord, I want to walk pure. I need your help. I won't, I, when I see things that attract me, I want to say no to them. We can't afford that. We don't need that. That'll become an idol. That's wrong for me. I want to have a covenant, Lord, that's in my heart, 
that covers my eyes. That's what Job said. Job, when, when, when everything came against Job, why did Job not collapse and go ahead and serve false gods? He had already made the covenant prior to the temptation. So when it came and Satan says, I know I can take Job out. I'll just take away all of his nice stuff. God says, go ahead. His covenant's deeper than that. It's at the heart level, which will control the eyes. He'll help us keep that which we've committed. Amen? He will help us keep it. You see, Satan, Satan wants you in darkness, or he wants you to stay in darkness, or he wants you to return to darkness. But if you look to Jesus and you look to the cross, it'll actually always steer you away from darkness, always steer you away from deception, always steer you away from your own uh, desires. See, Jesus desires, he offers, and yes, he commands that you walk in the light, that you abide in the light, and that you allow his spirit to keep us as a well-lit lamp. Amen? That he keep us as a well-lit lamp. And I ask you this question. It's the same for myself. Will you, will I, will we choose a light, choose his light, we choose his light and his life of being lamps in this world. Is that what we're going to choose? We're going to choose, say, Lord, we want to be lamps for you, well lit by your Holy Spirit. I'll close with the words from this hymn written in 1922. You probably know these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's close. Father, we thank you this morning that you've promised that you would not only be the light, but you would place your light within us. You are the light of the world. Lord, you've given us light to see our own sinful condition, but Lord, you're willing, even desiring, even longing, Lord, to cleanse and to purge the darkness out and to bring the light of eternity in. And before we close and just participate together in the Lord's Supper, if there's anyone here that has never experienced the life-changing light of the light of the world of Jesus, I just invite you to just stand where you're at. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Do you want to choose light and life? Just stand where you're at. A very simple question. Do you